0: As the conversation in HR continues to evolve from diversity to inclusion and belonging, you know one of the topics that we really narrow in on is this idea of bringing your whole self to work. What happens when you're not able to do that as an HR leader? You know I'm really uh, excited today to be joined by the head of people for FundApps, Pat Caldwell. Pat has a unique perspective on the topic of inclusion and belonging as somebody who was not always comfortable bringing their whole selves to work earlier in his career. You know, Pat shares his journey working in a mining company in Australia through his work in London and most recently the US and how he made the decision earlier in his career to come out at work after beginning his career, not really comfortable doing so and so really excited to share pat's story after a brief word from our sponsor 21st century hr is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches brought to you by my firm amplify amplify provides hr executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations from employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called The Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at amplifytalent.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 21st Century HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am be thrilled to be joined today by the head of people for FundApps, Pat Caldwell. Pat has a really interesting background that's taken him across three continents in his career, and we're going to talk about all of that. So, Pat, thanks so much for coming on the show. If you wouldn't mind, uh, just give listeners a a brief overview and intro on your background.
1: Sure thing, thanks for having me. Uh, So, My name is Pat Caldwell. Uh, I am the head of people at FundApps. Uh, For context, most people have never heard of FundApps. We are a SaaS company, Uh, we automate a compliance solution for financial institutions all around the world. I'm currently based in New York, but my remit at the moment covers uh, the UK and Singapore as well. Um, And as you said, most of my career has been uh, across Australia, the UK uh, and the US in various mining utilities and now tech industry.
0: Interesting. So I want to. You, you've done a lot of interesting work at FundApps that I want to spend a lot of time on. But before we get there, I want to. I want to kind of go back to your, your origins. You you started your HR career at a, a mining company in Australia, which to me seems like a really interesting place to practice HR. So what? Uh, let's kind of start there. What originally kind of drew you to HR, and and how did that uh, how did that interest kind of take you to a mining organization?
1: I'm an accidental HR professional, (laughs) that's how I've described it to uh, some of my family and friends, because I was always set on being a lawyer for many, many years. I even went to law school, and it wasn't until law school that I realized that I definitely do not want to be a lawyer. Um, And as I started studying business, I became very curious about all parts of business. Um, I love the financial side of things, I love the marketing side of things. Um, And it wasn't until I started studying organizational behavior that I became very, very curious around the elements of people and culture and how they can particularly drive a lot of value in an organization. Um, And originally, I saw my career going down a a, a recruitment path, perhaps because that was the only exposure I'd ever had to HR at that time. Um, And I took my parents' advice, which was just go out and experience something, you'll work the rest uh, as you go. Um, And I joined a mining company uh, on the graduate program in a HR role, Um, not knowing exactly where I'd want to go and being very happy with the idea that I might uh, transition between finance or law or anything else in the future, which I did make a little transition later on. Um, but decided to just get in there and experience it Um, and very fortunate enough I think to start my career in a company where I was surrounded by HR leaders who I think were well ahead of the times where HR was going, um, who could influence my career development and my perspectives on the role of HR in a company um, and really help I guess set up a bit of a platform for which I could then take that as I have anywhere in the world and apply it to, to many different contexts.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute, because I think, uh, you know, most people would think that a, uh, a, you know, a start in HR in a mining organization um, may not kind of uh, immediately translate to uh, a role running HR at a fintech, you know, uh, company. And so how, how did the experience from early in your career translate to your current role?
1: They are very different contexts, but um, I guess the benefit of working in HR in a mining company is that it gave me exposure to basically every part of HR. Uh, So mostly generalist roles uh, within an operating model that was very focused on business partnership. Uh, We were working alongside leaders, we were helping to coach, to counsel, to be a set of ears, to, to wear many different hats. Um, I think the key difference between a mining company and somewhere like a fintech startup like FundApps uh, is the employee relations side of things. So joining a, uh, an organization with 50,000 people around the world, a heavily unionized workforce, uh, sometimes second, third generational employees, uh, being based in mine sites, which are obviously not in, in metropolitan locations for the most part, meant that a lot of the work we were doing was very much focused on employee and industrial relations. So you do get to see, I think, some very very complex parts of HR. Um, you start to see things that uh, I guess are symptoms of what goes wrong and right in a culture over many many years. Um, but you get exposure to uh, to basically every part of HR, where you start to see the impact the impact that a talent and recruitment strategy can have on. Uh, the business performance and goals, and you start to see how long-term succession planning can actually drive a lot of value five and ten years in the future. Um, So when you make that transition from that 50,000-person company to a fintech startup like FundApps, which I think was about 27 or 28 people when I joined, um, it's definitely a culture shock. You definitely uh, realize that you're in a very different world to what you've ever experienced before. But the same principles behind how your talent and recruitment strategy can drive your business performance, how uh, succession planning can help prepare you for three, five, maybe not 10 years in the future when you're in a startup. Um, Those principles are very much the same. Um, So definitely a a great place to to start my career, but enjoying, I guess, the the refreshing environment that is a fintech startup without some of that nasty employee relations stuff as well.
0: I I can imagine you have some interesting stories from, uh, from that experience.
1: Uh, too too many. We spent a lot of time in, uh, in in tribunals. That was just the nature of the business. Um, a lot of time doing various you know investigations and dealing with grievances. But all of that, I think, are great things to get under your belt early uh, because when you know how to deal with, with stuff when when shit hits the fan, um, I always think you, you learn to appreciate the good stuff as it comes along the way as well. Yeah.
0: Well, let's you know before you got to fund apps, you after about five years in the mining company, you relocated to London. Uh, to run people ops for a water utility. And what, uh, what brought you to London? What, uh, what was kind of behind that transition?
1: I think that was a moment of uh, throw everything in, take a massive risk, and hope for the best. Um, so at the time, I was with, uh, with a partner who had a UK passport. Um, we talked about you know traveling Europe. Uh, obviously, London is a, is a great gateway to be able to do that. I was very comfortable uh, working in the mining industry. I probably could have spent 20 years there and been a very happy, engaged, stimulated employee. Um, I I might do that one day again, um, but it got to the point, I I think, after five years where I was starting to look at what breadth looks like in my career, Um, and it's a big thing that uh, my dad, who was also a a former, former employee of that company back in the day. Um, he was something that he always taught me quite early, which was this idea of the power of two, which was you know how you find in your first five or ten years of employment, being able to work across two different companies, two different industries, uh, two different contexts with two different languages, uh, two different countries, um, and really start to add breadth to the kind of experience that you get. Um, so that was a moment where... Um, I walked into work one day. I uh, put my letter of resignation down in front of one of the most amazing bosses I've ever worked for. Um, I left almost with a tear in my eye wondering what the hell I'd just signed up to. Uh, packed a bag, moved to London and, and hoped for the best. And, and that was kind of the spur of the, the decision, one of those few moments in my life where I thought I'm just going to take a risk and, and, and everything worked out. In the long run, as they as they tend to do with things like that. Yeah.
0: Well, so you're you're in London. You're running people ops. Uh, you you come across your current CEO, who is you know making a pitch for you to come in and uh, join his early stage startup. What about that pitch resonated with you?
1: There were two parts to the pitch. Um, so I met our current CEO, Andrew, over a coffee in a, in a little Shoreditch coffee shop, which now becomes tradition for us to have our catch-ups when we both happen to be in London, just for old time's sake. Um, and I think the two parts that I had with him over the recruitment process, um, it, was, it was less, I guess, about the pitch um, and more about what I could inherently tell from the way that the company was being run, the principles in which it had been built. Uh, so what became blatantly obvious to me from having a coffee with with Andrew and then also meeting, you know, the co-founder and some of the other people leaders was that they weren't looking to bring in their first people ops hire in the company um, to do everything for them. Uh, they weren't looking to palm off their problems. They weren't experiencing significant challenges on the people side. Uh, they were already uh, deeply invested personally in trying to build a, a culture at a company which could do a lot of good. Um, people were already first on the agenda before I even arrived there. Um, and when you've got a founding team and leadership team who are equally as passionate about people and culture as you are, that's a pretty awesome place to be in when you're thinking about joining this company. Um, and at the time, I remember a few things that Andrew pointed out. There was an aspiration to, be, to become a, a, a B Corp, a kind of a company that um, would hold itself to higher levels of, of performance and transparency. Um, there was an aspiration to leave old school HR at the door. Um, it's a transition that's being made across many industries at the moment and has been for decades around building this new concept of a modern people team and a modern people strategy that really put uh, the individual, sometimes messy differences uh, between people at the heart of what you're doing um, and, and start to really focus on that early. And I think I respected a decision from a company that was completely bootstrapped at the time to bring in people ops when there were only about 25 people shows that they were deeply invested in wanting to do this right. Um, I think the the story of uh, companies reaching 50 people and a lot of of the literature out there says you should wait a little bit longer. Um, I think this was a good foresight to recognize that if you're going to double or triple in size very quickly, uh, having a people ops team and a strategy focused around uh, scaling the company was was going to do a lot of good. So by the end of that recruitment process, I think I would have probably been uh, crying in the corner somewhere with a glass of wine if I didn't get the job. That's how attached I became to FundApps after meeting them all.
0: Yeah, well that's uh, definitely a smart play on their part to start investing in that people team early. And if, uh, if you're reading literature, if you're a CEO out there and you're reading literature that's saying wait until you're 50 or more, uh, stop reading that. Literature don't 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 view that source as credible anymore because you have really got to build. I think so many startups make the mistake of they're they're so focused on growth and scale early that uh, people ops becomes kind of an afterthought, right? Or or if anything, they're just focused on recruiting and that's it.
1: I think there's definitely a, this perception that somehow bringing in people ops or or HR is somehow going to negatively impact the culture, and this is this kind of old school way of you know startups. Are, traditionally these kind of fun places to work and they've been branded as such. Um, and there's this, somehow this worry that HR is gonna change all the good stuff that's happened. Um, and I think if, if that's the worry, you're probably just chatting to the wrong people ops person. Um, most of the people ops people can really only add, but I think good people ops people really add to the culture and help keep those common themes and values the same as you grow rather than try and replace them or get rid of them. Right,
0: well, that's something I think that uh, people thinking like that are bringing legacy perceptions of HR. Into the current world and modern people leaders, modern people teams. That's that's not their jam. That's not how they operate. And so they're they're additive. They're not uh, they're not policy cops. And that's uh, that's certainly a big distinction. I think when you look at the evolution of the field. Um, one of the things I'm curious about your uh, you mentioned kind of when you came into FundApps originally. I think you're employee 27. Um, how big is the company now? And kind of what does your people team look like?
1: So we're still quite small. Um, So as of, I think in a month's time, we'll be approaching the 70 people mark. Uh, We've got three offices now across the globe with a couple of remote employees as well. Um, The size of our people team follows a similar kind of uh, chain of thought to investing a little bit earlier than what you think you might need. Um, So we will soon be a team of three, uh, myself included. Uh, The intention being that, As we start to approach the kind of hundred people, more remote working, uh, more complex communication lines, more leaders in the company, we wanted to make sure we were putting enough focus on uh, two or three key areas. uh, One being the the branding and the talent side of things. As a company like FundApps, most people don't know what we do because we're not blessed with, um, I guess, having a lot of the same customers who we do employees. Um, So we have to really build our brand from scratch. Um, so have got somebody who's going to focus directly on the branding and, and the talent and recruitment side of things. Uh, we need to invest more on our career progression, our leadership development, um, our communication strengths and preferences. So we have somebody in our team who's going to focus specifically on learning. Um, and then myself who's got more of the more of the generalist remit so uh, quite a big people team if you apply the traditional ratio but uh the same thing applies with the literature of having 50 people we've we've decided that uh three people with the focus and remits that we have is going to be what we need for fund apps over the next couple of years
0: got it and i want to i want to start getting into some of the programs you developed at fund apps because you've uh, You've certainly been busy uh, during that time, but before we get into specific programs, I want to talk to you about a topic that I know is, uh, is very important to you, which is belonging. And you certainly have a unique perspective on what it means to feel that within a company. And, you know, uh, earlier in your career, you wrote a, a post in the Huffington Post about not feeling comfortable, kind of being open about your sexuality at work earlier in your career. When did you know that it was time to open up to your colleagues and share that side of yourself with them?
1: I don't think it was ever a morning that I woke up and said I'm going to proverbially come out of the closet at work. Um, there was certainly a, a longing I'd had for, for many years where I was investing a lot of time and, and emotional energy into covering my sexuality at work. Um, I think coupled with that, um, there's a journey I think everyone goes on, uh, especially with just so much stigma around you know, identifying as being LGBTI, that uh, feeling comfortable in your own skin also has a very personal flavor to it as much as it is a, a workplace thing as well. So for me, I'd spent many years in a company where, and it's what I wrote in the article, it actually became just very easy when people assumed you were straight, um, very easy to do job. Um, No one really took uh, any care about, you know, personal lives and so forth. Um, And over time, as I started to feel more comfortable outside of work in in being in my own skin and started to share that part of me with, you know, my parents and my brothers and sisters, um, there then ended up being this this weird gap where I was, you know, when I walked through the doors coming to work each day, I would uh, basically cover that part of me. Um, and it would be making sure that I do everything from avoiding, you know, conversations around, you know, my personal life or what I do on the weekend, and, and just trying to be more impersonal with with what I was doing because everyone assumed that I was straight, and it was just easy for me to do my job. Um, over time, I think what changed for me is a couple of the people uh, at, at my workplace. Um, when I did decide to share it with, with not everybody, but I guess a few who are in my close circle and immediate team at work. You know, I worked for a leader who who remains, I guess, a mentor for me, um, who I think was one of the more inclusive leaders I've, I've ever worked with. And that for me, I think was a key turning point, knowing that um i felt very very safe in the workplace uh opening up and being you know that being my full self um, and showing that part of my life because i had a leader who who already knew me on a very personal level who who deeply cared about me who was very authentic herself um, at the same time as being comfortable in my own skin to, to to, to almost uh, own that part of me and, and have the confidence around it. So that was, I guess, the decision behind it. Um, it was a matter of months between when I'd shared with my family and then when I decided to share it with, uh, with uh, my team at work. Um, interestingly, I, I only shared it with a couple of people within the HR team, um, those who I was business partnering with at the time, uh, and even more broader teams. Uh, if I didn't have that I guess, very, very uh, safe personal connection with them and and, uh, comfort, I guess, being myself around them, uh, I still lied. Um, I don't regret that decision. I think that was the right thing for for me at the time. Um, FundApps, I think now is probably the the first company that I've ever actually been out with everyone from from day one. Um, And that has a profound effect, I think, on me personally, not having to expend any of that energy covering myself each day.
0: Right, and so that that experience obviously for you is very um, it's very personal. It's it's very real. Your your lens on being able to bring your whole self to work and belonging, I think, is is profoundly different than than many kind of practitioners. And for you, you know, how did that how did your own journey and your own experience start to shape your views on really what it meant to build an inclusive organization?
1: I think uh, the shift that I made in my in my personal life, and also one which I guess I'm encouraging now many others to do, is to almost remove this obsession we have around diversity and just keep things focused on this idea of inclusion and belonging. Um, only because I know firsthand that you can put up a, you take LGBTI as an example, you know, you can be uh, members of external bodies, you can be certified with things, you can put up a rainbow flag, but that never meant that I felt a different sense of inclusion or belonging. Um, so for me how it shaped it I think from a from a deeply personal level and and this is I guess what I'm trying to build now with uh, with the leaders and with my team and more broadly across fund apps is how you help create a a workplace and an environment where when people do feel comfortable themselves and they have that confidence in themselves to to bring their whole self to work that there's never a barrier in the workplace to actually do that and, and those two things always run side by side in each other. Um, I don't think, uh, I, I know as a, as, a, as a gay man within mining and then within utilities and now within tech, never once have I wanted my sexuality to be celebrated or to be put on a pedestal. Um, all I actually ever wanted when I was covered was for it to be a non-issue. Um, and I remember telling my uh, my manager at the time who who created that safe space for me and, uh, and that held true. It was a non-issue, I think she thanked me for uh, for sharing that part of my life and then it became, uh, it became no different to any other day. I just felt almost this weight off my shoulders. Um, and it taught me a valuable lesson, I think, which was uh, it's never about putting anything on a pedestal. It's never about trying to celebrate for branding. It's about genuinely trying to create a place where um, when people and if people feel comfortable bringing that whole self to work, that they have absolutely no barriers in the workplace uh, from doing that. And and that takes years and tough conversations and frustrations and and lots of ups and downs in order to get there. Um, but given I've, I guess I've experienced it myself with the feeling when you can bring your whole self to work, I think when others are ready to do that in their personal lives, I'd love for them to to, to share that feeling as well.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things that we had talked about around just this notion of bring your whole self to work is an environment where psychological safety is, is kind of foundational in the culture, and, and how the organization works. And it's really hard to ask your employees to bring their whole self to work if they don't feel that. And so, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, what are things that HR leaders can do to really encourage and, and influence an atmosphere of psychological safety?
1: There's a couple of things I think we've found uh, a lot of success with and, and are things I know have had a, a pretty strong impact on, on me. The first is that, uh, it's that it's never just something that HR is accountable for. Um, psychological safety transcends more than just inclusion and belonging. It cuts through things around uh, collaboration and communication lines and so forth. Um, so it has to be something that is is more deeply entrenched than just a, a HR initiative or, or focus area. Which means the, f- the first thing I think, and this is the role that that HR leaders can play, is the expectations that you put on having the right leaders in place uh, are critical. So, some people are, are naturally very inclusive leaders, some people are naturally very uh, genuine and authentic. Um, I think the, the view of authenticity has a huge part to do with psychological safety. Um, I know when I came out to the first leader in my life, uh, something I, I deeply respected about her was, and, and still do, um, was the fact that I felt like I genuinely uh, had a very authentic leader, somebody who uh, was more than happy to have some courage and be vulnerable, uh, was more than happy to admit when things didn't go right, was more than happy to turn the chairs around and get everybody focused when she didn't know the answer. Um, and. That creates psychological safety more broadly within the team, and I I think helped contribute to, um, I guess my my own journey of of then sharing that part of my life with her and then the broader team. Um, I think the other thing is uh, being able to uh, talk about things that are typically taboo. Um, A lot of elements of, I mean, coming back, I guess the personal side. A lot of elements of LGBTI culture, I think, are quite misunderstood um, or people are curious about them and never really sure how to ask. Uh, We did something recently at FundApps when I was in London two weeks ago um, where we ran uh, basically like a fireside chat. It wasn't designed to be a presentation. It was designed to uh, pull the couches around. Anybody who would like to attend can attend and we're going to have a very open conversation around gender, sex and sexuality. And it was a fascinating conversation that went for almost two hours where... Um, The the intent of it was to do nothing more than simply explore uh, opinions within the room, different perspectives, what people knew, what they were curious about, um, and do it in the way that could encourage some rich discussion in in a safe place where um, over time when you start to do that, people feel more and more comfortable knowing that it's okay to ask questions around what it's actually like being gay and, and being covered in the workplace or it's okay asking questions around, you know, why gender stereotypes with parental leave uh, impact things at the way that they do. Um, So definitely I think a a huge role that a HR leader can play is starting to break down some of the stigma and barriers to these open conversations that I think sometimes get, get in the way of psychological safety. Couple that with, I think, a lot of work around leaders having the right inclusive behaviors, encouraging discussions, having that courage to be vulnerable. When you put those two and two together, I think they're a pretty profound influence on creating more psychological safety within that space.
0: Yeah, and you you touched on an area uh, around vulnerability that uh, I want to kind of underline. Like, I think that. When you look at the, as you look at the contrast, right, between legacy HR and modern HR, and obviously that's a big focus of, uh, of this podcast, the, you know, the 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 stereotypes and their perceptions of what an HR leader was then was oftentimes, you know, walled off, inaccessible, cold, uh, or, or in some cases, maybe even hokey, right? Kind of going the other way. I think when you're looking at modern leaders today, know, they combine this um, domain expertise and uh, kind of business fluency, and all these kind of traits that you know CEOs and operating boards need them to have in today's world. But I'm increasingly seeing vulnerability being one of the uh, one of the traits that they they possess as well, and being able to be open about, you know, not having all the answers, or being able to be open about their own struggles in their life. And I think that's allowing. Them to connect with their employees in ways that um, you know legacy personas just couldn't because they can they can see they they are they're not infallible um, you know they they have struggles as well and they're open to talking about them and I just feel that when when HR leaders are able to be real and be vulnerable uh, and be open and I love hearing stories about that because I think that it it really allows their teams to connect with them in a meaningful way that. Uh, you know, that, that they couldn't when they kind of stood behind this uh, you know, this veneer of, uh, of perfection. Um, for you, like you, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, one of the things that drew you to FundApps originally was their intent on becoming a B Corp. And I know recently um, you've actually met those certification requirements. And so for listeners, I want to focus there a little bit because I think that B Corp, um, B Corp status is something that we're going to start to see more and more companies Aspire towards, uh, and in that journey, there's there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of requirements and kind of work on that that falls to the the people team. And so, for starters, just on the the B Corp program, for listeners that aren't familiar with that certification, can you give an overview of, of what that is?
1: Yeah, sure. So B Corp certification um, is. Uh, it was best described to me in, in a very simplistic way as, as what fair trade is for the coffee industry, B Corp has the potential to become for businesses. And uh, it's a certification process that holds businesses to high levels of accountability for the performance in their company. Um, and they define performance as being much more broader than simply financial performance. So there's usually five parts to becoming a B Corp. They kind of split it out into to five different categories. Um, so there's obviously the people and culture category, which Um, HR I think has a huge role to to be able to to influence and lead, Um, but it also looks at the governance of your company, how you encourage more accountability and transparency. It looks at your uh, environmental impact and what steps you're taking to become a more sustainable business. It looks at your client and customer focus and what you do to have transparency with your clients, um, how you're able to put the client experience first. And it looks at uh, your role within the community. Um, which has a big focus on diversity, inclusion, and belonging, but it also looks at, you know, the amount of time you spend and amount of money you spend uh, investing back in the communities that you operate to to pay it forward for for other businesses, for other enterprises to be able to uh, to to also go down a, a similar kind of journey. So it's a it's a very rigorous process to go through becoming a B Corp, and um, it's it's not a tick box activity because most B Corps I think who you know I've met their their leaders with never do it to just simply become a B Corp because fundamentally what the B Corp certification is doing is trying to raise the bar across all businesses for how we define good performance in a business and the, uh, the journey to get there means you have to make some pretty significant changes to basically every part of your business if you even want to shop.
0: Yeah, and I think that, that you, you, uh, you wrote a, a really kind of detailed and helpful blog post about what that journey was like at FundApps, and I'll, I'll actually embed a link to that in the show description, so for listeners that want to check that out, um, definitely recommend that because it was, uh, you, you had a lot of meat to it. For HR leaders that are Listening, and you know, maybe they've uh, they they've heard uh, aspirations within their kind of organization about becoming a B Corp, or maybe they're actually just getting started on that journey themselves. What can they expect, right? What is the what is the onus on the people team for supporting that certification process?
1: Uh, well, the first thing is you can expect a lot of work, but it's work put to a very, very uh, good cause which ultimately can, can do uh, incredible things for, for the business. Uh, I think the role of the people team first and foremost is recognizing that the, the people team alone can't become a B Corp. Um, so you could max out everything on the people and culture category and you still won't be accepted into the, uh, into the, the B Corp community. Uh, until you're willing to demonstrate that your commitment to to higher standards of business actually transcends beyond just one team or or, or just the people side of your of your business. So the role that I, I certainly took on, um, and I was obviously blessed with uh, a founder and and uh, most people leaders who were very much on board for the journey we wanted to take as a company to to raise that bar on ourselves. Um, so the role that I pl- played was mostly down a facilitation side. Um, So obviously the people and culture element I took a a leading role from, but being able to then coordinate uh, everyone across the business to show them how they could actually impact B Corp. We did it through a few different ways. Um, The first was that we called out at the start of 2018 um, publicly our aspiration to become a B Corp, but we set it as one of our key company objectives for the year. We elevated it up to alongside our, our revenue growth, alongside our product diversification, alongside you know, all the work we were doing at a very strategic level across the business, uh, we elevated becoming a B Corp uh, to that level. Uh, every month we would talk about our progress, we would track it uh, very methodically. Um, and we got everybody involved in uh, the role that they could play. So it might be something from um, uh, volunteering within the local community. It might be working with the People Ops team to design a performance framework that's really going to benefit our people. Uh, It might be encouraging more open conversation and challenge around the financial performance of the business. Um, So a big part of B Corp is how transparent you are with your financial performance with your company. Um, and we took that as we're going to get the entire company together with with our finance guru and our and our CEO and a few other different people, and we're going to have a very open conversation around how we're actually performing as a as a bootstrapped company, given we have no uh, given we have no uh, deep funding pockets to to reach into. Um, and over time, what that meant, especially in 2018, before we became uh, before we became a B Corp, which we did in December last year was that everyone became almost emotionally invested in the B Corp journey, um, which is I think the role that the people team and and myself and my my other half of the team um, were successful in playing because it was no longer looking to us to become B Corp. Um, Everyone was looking for ways in their own world to be able to to support that. Um, So if if people are genuinely looking at making that journey, I mean, that that blog post is a good place to start. Um, That's indicative, I think, of A whole host of changes that we had to make in the business Um, and the changes are are not insignificant Um, it does require you to sometimes tear up existing ways of working it requires you to do things which are going to feel a little bit uncomfortable Uh, and then over time is when you realize you start implementing some of these projects and initiatives and you realize the impact that they can actually have uh, it's almost that validation that you're going down the the right path. So I think people team as a as a facilitator be aware that it's going to be it's so much more than a tick box and it requires a genuine commitment across the board to actually achieve it. Um, but well worth the pain to 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 be able to get through that.
0: Yeah, well that that description is really helpful and I think a really important point is just you know when you're able to create an environment where you know going for B Corp status and kind of you know changing your business operations and even your mindset uh, to align with that community becomes something that's embraced by all employees. That's, that's where the magic happens, right? Everybody, everybody's thinking about their own role as it relates to sustainable practices and, and giving back and making an impact. It's not just pure bottom line focus.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had a, uh... I think it was only a couple of months ago, we had uh, somebody asked for what the most recent update is around where we want to go and to become a B Corp, what our plan was over the next few years. Um, and then we started seeing people on our volunteering Slack channel starting to make recommendations for others to to make sure they're investing more time out in the community. And these were things which, I mean, my role in that was basically redundant. Um, it was starting to be led by everyone across the business, which is like the uh, the ultimate ecstasy for any uh, for any HR professional is when they get to step away from that work because it just happens automatically.
0: Yeah, well, look, I think when you when you talk about 21st century HR, that's a big part of it, right? It's like the the people leaders can create a you know a framework, um, but really many of the initiatives are led by employees, they're led by managers, they're led by Leaders, uh, HR doesn't have to own everything, and so I guess with that, that's a, a great segue to my next question. You know, how when you think about 21st century HR, what does that term mean to you?
1: I'm I'm glad you called it 21st century HR because I was reading an article I think in HBR a few weeks ago that was talking about like the future of work and the future of HR, which um, I think was complete BS given all of that is actually already happening right now. Um, so I think that 21st century HR is a is a really Good way of describing it, because I think we are uh, in the middle of a transition happening at the moment, where people are starting to realise that the role of HR has to fundamentally shift if it's delivering value in a company. Um, I look at some of the changes we're seeing more broadly. Uh, you know, using it's no longer you know presenting things top down. It's around getting people involved and engaged in you know volunteer armies to to support new initiatives. Uh, almost co-creating uh, your your frameworks uh, between people ops and different employees which has obviously benefits for for ownership and, and engagement but it's a different way of design within a company which um, uh, requires a different mindset when you when you go into it I think the 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 various hats that HR professionals need to play, no longer being this kind of back office function, this is who you go to for all the transactional processing or where you go to when there's fires that need to be put out. Um, you are genuinely part of the business. Um, you know, I see myself as much as part of our technology team as as, you know, I see our developers as part of the technology team. Um, and we are side by side, both employees and leaders, sometimes being coached, sometimes being counsel, sometimes being a, a set of ears and support, um, but ultimately looking to really, really partner with the business uh, and particularly with leaders to help drive um, greater standards of behaviors and performance and so forth. And that's a, that's a massive shift in both skill set and in my set for HR professionals. Um, I know that I've got plenty of colleagues, and even myself included, who are looking at policies as, do we absolutely need this, or can we tear it up and just be a little bit more flexible and agile in what we're doing? Um, do, or our benefit strategy starts to shift beyond you know, wanting uh, one benefit strategy for everyone, and how do we encourage more flexibility, knowing that people are very, very individual people and we need to respect that. Differences are, are great things, and and our HR strategy should support the fact that that people are so individual. Um, so I think the transition is is already happening, and we're definitely in a new way of working now, which is uh, less about the top down, less about the structure in the OD, more about the communication, more about the collaboration, um, and HR needs to be pretty pretty agile to to react to that. Otherwise, you know, they'll they'll be left behind, and and the old school HR I don't think is going to cut it anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, you 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 Raise a great point around kind of modern HR. It's more about you know policy for the many as opposed to policy against the few. And that was a real linchpin of, of legacy thinking in HR. It's like what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Okay, everybody's gonna do that. You know, let's safeguard the company from that. And I think when you take the different approach of saying, let's assume best intent intent, uh, that actually gets you to a place where you can tear up some of your policies, right? they're, they're just they're obsolete, you you don't need them, and if if a situation happens where you know you have to address a, a situation, you do that on an individual level, um, but you don't create a broad policy that's gonna that's gonna impact everybody based on that you know that thing that hasn't happened yet that might happen. Um, you know, last question for you, Pat. When you kind of look across the industry and you look across kind of your your peers and HR leaders in the space, who do you look to for inspiration? You know, who who do you who do you kind of follow their work? Uh, and kind of view that as a, as a beacon and a model for really where the field is going?
1: It's a good question. I, I think I follow more generally good content rather than good leaders. Um, I, I find a lot of inspiration out of great new initiatives and things that go on LinkedIn and in articles around great work that's actually happening. Uh, although saying that, there are probably two or three people who I almost religiously follow Um, I think because there's there's almost a deep values alignment. So uh, if anybody ever comes and works in a people ops team that I'm working in, it is required reading to read Work Rules by Laszlo Bock. Um, It's it's almost become like an element of pop culture now for HR. But for me, when I left HR and came back, that was one of my almost bibles for, uh, I agreed with almost everything in that book to such an extent that it reinvigorated my my passion to, to work in HR again. Um, I became very, very well connected, well, only connected by way of values, I don't actually know her, but uh, Patty McCord from Netflix, um, when she did a lot of those presentations, some of the early culture deck work, um, that was basically, you know, putting the finger up to a lot of uh, very old school HR practices, and, and I respected that courage to, to, to do that. And I'm a very, very recent um, addition to the Brene Brown Bandwagon. Um, it ties in actually a lot with what we were talking it's about. A big with,
0: bandwagon, yeah. Yeah, the bandwagon.
1: I think everyone now is already on Netflix watching her uh, watching her shows. But um, her work around vulnerability and the way that she can articulate the importance of courage and vulnerability and, and shame, um, it has a lot to do with the psychological safety uh, stuff we talked about earlier. Uh, but for me, uh, it it put into words things which needed to be articulated in a much more simple way. Um, and, and if that's digestible for more people, I think that's a fantastic lesson for people to, uh, to, to be learning. So I'm, I'm definitely a, a, a Brene Brown fan.
0: Well, Pat, I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you coming on and kind of sharing your, your story and your journey and, uh, looking forward to following your work from here.
1: Thanks very much for having me. It's been great chatting.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of 21st Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.